This is live from my office. Hi, Steve Cochran here with an announcement. We, uh, because of your support, have grown to a level where we are I'm trying to think of how I could put this into understandable terms because it's not like I understand it all that well either. But, you know, if you have a store and business is good and you have to get a bigger store or maybe open a second store, well, that's kind of where we're at. So uh, this is the only podcast we will have this week. It happens to be our 99th, by the way. And then we're off for the remainder of the week uh, because we are doing some technical adjustments in ways that this podcast is presented and, uh, and, and, and gets us the analytics we need. Um, and because of that, we'll be off for the remainder of the week. Why am I telling you this? Well, because I know you're so good to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. I don't want you to think that suddenly I, uh, I, I am, you know, in, in the witness protection program. So no show Wednesday or Friday, but then next Monday will be our 100th episode of Live from My Office. <laughs> they said it couldn't be done. So I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I will put up on social media this week some information on that show as it develops. Um, and, of course, you can find my social media uh, connections in the show notes, along with everything about this episode, where we're going to focus on um, positive news and uh, hopeful news in two ways. One, this is Autism Awareness Month, and whether you are touched by this uh, cause or not, uh, it is a part of everyday life in America and I couldn't be prouder to tell you that my daughter uh, works in this field um, and, and manages others in this field to bring the best quality of life possible, not just to kids who have autism, uh, but also to the families as well. So Amy Cochran will be appearing on this podcast as her brother, Ross Cochran, who produces and directs this whole thing. Uh, does uh, and has in the past as well. So we'll get to that in just a second in uh, Autism Awareness Month and the guest Amy Cochran. Tough to book, by the way. A lot of attitude. Uh, and then uh, Ryan Dowd, the former director of Hesed House, one of the most innovative uh, homeless shelters in the country, uh, now works with homeless uh, shelters in, uh, around the country, around the world. And uh, he has some interesting things to say in regards to the cause of homelessness because when you think about the last year in COVID and how crushed charities have been. I mean, can you imagine what this has done to try to keep these shelters open with social distancing and having less capacity, all of that. Anyway, we'll get into that with Ryan Dowd as well. But before we get to the good news and the hopeful news, we have news on the front of the 60, my own political movement, if you will. My theory, my sermon, the 20% on the right and the 20% on the left, the far right, the far left are the problem. They're not the solution. And we've seen evidence of it again just this past weekend. Uh, and, it, and it goes into today, actually recording this podcast on April 12th. And on April 11th, less than 24 hours ago, as the Derek Chauvin trial continues in Minneapolis, St. Paul, one of my favorite places in the world, the Twin Cities, we find out that a uh, a young black man was shot and killed in an altercation with police. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic. And um, it's not being made better by the governor of the state of Minnesota. And again, this is just to amplify why the 60 matters. The 60% of us in the middle who can actually change the political calculations in this country but from, from I'm right and you're wrong and that's all there is to it, to actually getting something done. It doesn't help when the Democratic governor of Minnesota, Tim Walz, tweets out yesterday, Gwen and I, Gwen I assume is Mr. Walz's wife, Gwen and I are praying for Dante Wright's family. Dante Wright's a young man who died. 
Uh, Gwen and I are praying for Dante Wright's family, he tweeted, as our state mourns another life of a black man taken by law enforcement. Uh, that's not helpful. Not on any level. The Twin Cities are on a knife's edge right now uh, because of tension and because of what the Chauvin trial verdict may be. Um, it's very akin to the early 90s with the Rodney King trial. I can't begin, and most likely you can't begin if you're a, a Caucasian. Uh, you can't begin to understand what it's like to be black in this country and to have the concern that your um, young uh, child, your teen, your 20-something, especially the sons, um, could be stopped by the police and caught up in something that leads to their injury or death. It's, it's, it's crazy. It shouldn't happen, but it does. So the idea that there's no systemic racism in this country is just nonsense. Of course there is. The idea that there aren't bad cops that need to be dealt with, again, nonsense. Of course there is. We don't know what happened in Minneapolis-St. Paul in regards to this young man who was killed yesterday. We don't. If you looked all over social media, you would see that the police stopped a guy because he had air fresheners in his car, and then they shot and killed him. Uh, there are body cameras. Um, there is additional information that came out as of the time we're recording this that said that uh, this young man had an existing arrest warrant and he refused to be taken into custody. We don't know what happened beyond that. I'm not for a moment saying that shooting him and killing him was the right move, but I'm also saying I wasn't there and neither were you. And the circumstances of Derek Chauvin cannot be applied to this case until we know more, which is why it makes Governor Tim Wall's tweet so irresponsible. And by the way, Tim Walls likes to uh, talk about the fact that he's a National Guard vet, and God bless him for his service. Well, wouldn't you think a National Guard vet who was tasked with uh, keeping people safe at a time when he's had to call out the guard to the streets of Minneapolis, wouldn't you think he'd be a little more careful in his political language until we know more. The governor of the state needs to be the mom or the dad of the state. The one that's going to say, let's all calm down. Let's hear both sides of the story and let's figure it out. Derek Chauvin is on trial for his life and he should be, but there are no circumstances that tie what he did to George Floyd, that murder to this. And until further notice, the governor doesn't help with a tweet like that just, that, that, that just fires people up and makes everything worse. That's the Democrat side of things. That's that 20. The Republican 20, well, it's hard to pick just one. But over the weekend, former President Donald J. Trump did what he does. It was a Saturday night speech to GOP donors, and uh, Trump took to the microphone, went off prompter almost immediately. There at his Mar-a-Lago club in Palm Beach. And he called the former uh, head of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who, who, who kept him in the White House by blocking the legitimate removal of Trump in his first impeachment. McConnell literally saved Trump's job. He called McConnell, quote, a dumb son of a bitch for not fighting to overturn President Joe Biden's victory. Uh, the simple fact that a former president uses language like that in public because he thinks it's appropriate or cute or he is literally smarter than anyone, which for Donald Trump is absolutely not provable in any scientific way. It's just outrageous. Meanwhile, top Republicans did respond. Liz Cheney, 
stepped up and uh, called Trump out for what he is, completely disloyal and bad for the party. Um, but uh, and Senator John Thune criticized the remarks as well. But there were other Republicans who said, oh, that's just what he says in tone. But he and Mitch want the same thing. They want Republicans to win. So the idea that the uh, currently elected members of the Senate in the House, to a lesser extent, are so drunk with their love for Donald Trump, who in no way returns any loyalty whatsoever to the people who are loyal to him, it's just outrageously stupid. And just based on that stupidity, they shouldn't be reelected. But there's your Republican example. Trump and the fools that continue to support him. On the Democrat side, Minnesota Governor Tim Walls making a, a terrible situation in Minneapolis-St. Paul worse with a, a tweet that didn't need to happen yesterday. As always, we warn you, think about it. Don't just hit send. That's why the 60 matters. Be a part of the 60. The 60 is those of us who are in the middle who want the government to work effectively for the people of this country. All right, enough of this. Let's move on to that. Thanking David Hochberg. Our friend David Hochberg, of course, is the title sponsor of Live From My Office. And as we head to episode 100 next Monday, can't thank David enough. Um, But David Hochberg and the team, Hochberg folks, uh, they are working right now to get my son, Ross, and uh, his family, Lauren, Abigail, Ross, get the four of them into their first house uh, to own. They're, they're working on that right now as we speak because my family continues to use Hochberg the same way I recommend you do as well. So thank you, David, for all the support. Uh, this is live from my office. We're going to come back with Amy Cochran with some hopeful news and some explanations about autism during Autism Awareness Month after this on Live from My Office. If you're looking to refinance your existing home, call Team Hochberg. You trusted local lender, Dora, 78, loaded with debt, barely making it financially off her Social Security and her deceased husband's pension. But Doris was overwhelmed because her late husband handled the finances. She needed help. So she called Team Hochberg for a free consultation. Team Hochberg helped Doris pay off her debt with a cash-out refinance, which helped her afford renovations to make her home safer to live in. Also helped build an emergency fund and reduced her payments over $800 a month. Well, that's almost ten grand a year. So let's review. Before calling, Doris was stressed out, struggling to pay her bills. After calling Team Hochberg, she's debt-free, made modifications to safely live in her home, built an emergency fund, and saved almost 10000 bucks a year. That's good news. And that comes from Team Hochberg, where they have, they, well, look, they've helped thousands of listeners to this podcast throughout the uh, the old radio days for me and like doris they help rearrange finances even after the death of somebody you love uh, but they can't help if you don't call 855-56-DAVID or go to 56david.com and tune in to home sweet home chicago it's hosted by david ochberg saturday mornings right after house march at 10 on wgn homeside financial is an equal housing lender and mls number 1124061 Now, this is live from my office, and once a year I get to do this, and it's the highlight of the year for obvious reasons. I'd like to introduce you to my daughter, Amy Cochran. Hi, Amy. Hey. Thank you for being on. I appreciate it. Of course. April is Autism Awareness Month, and you are a BCBA 
for a company called By Your Side. So we're going to talk about autism here, but let's start with talking about what it is that you do. Um, what is a BCBA? A BCBA stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst. So BCBAs work in a variety of fields, but by far um, the biggest field that BCBAs work in is in the field of autism. BCBAs also work in fields like increasing organizational behavior management, dealing with various addictions. So wherever behavior occurs, it sounds like. Is it a growing field? Oh, definitely, yes. All right. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's by far dominant in BCBAs mostly work in the autism field, but there's other fields they work in as well. Now, because I'm your father, I know a little of this, but I don't know all of it, obviously, because I'm not a BCBA, but a behavior analyst, you have to analyze the behavior of something that in the big picture, we don't seem to know that much about. Is that why behavior analysts, BCBAs are so important in the, in, in, in the field of autism? So what I do is I provide applied behavior analysis or ABA therapy, um, which is a type of therapy that focuses on improving specific behaviors like social skills, communication, reading, academics, adaptive learning skills. I mean, I guess to put it even more simply, um, ABA looks to increase socially significant behaviors. I don't really know if that well, then, then answers your question. But. Yeah, well, what I'm hearing then is uh, what I believe to be true, and that is your job and the job of others who do what you do and those that work for you is to maximize the lives of these kids and the lives of their families as well um, with the knowledge that you have in the world that they're living in. Because the truth is uh, it's not entirely fair to them because they have to play by our rules and um, kids with autism think differently. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, That's why like the social significant piece is important in ABA. Um, So, I mean, ABA is not looking to create robots by any means. It's definitely a criticism that you do hear about ABA. Um, ABA done right does not like to create robots. You know, we want to, like you said, help kiddos achieve their greatest potential while celebrating their differences um, and how to use those to their advantage. So the best individual outcomes for the individual. So, I mean, that should be a goal of any teacher, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so by your side is the company you work for. I know you work in a clinic, but you also see kids and their families uh, in their homes, as do the therapists that work for you and with you. Uh, is there advantage of one over the other, or do we not even know? So, the full name of my company is um, By Your Side Autism Therapy Services. Okay. Um, and we provide in clinic, include ABA speech therapy and occupational therapy. We also offer in-home ABA services. And like you said, there's a lot of factors that and very individualized for the kid and the family. What setting is the best setting for them? A lot of times combination is the best setting for sure. them. So. Sure. And these kids are of what age range? Two is typically the youngest, or is really the youngest we have, and 
we have a couple of teenagers in our clinic. Um, I work with a teenager, but um, in the past, I've worked with kiddos up to the age of 18 before. What is the uh, biggest misconception we have about uh, kids with autism? Is there just one that stands out or is that too hard to say? I really believe that kiddos on the autism spectrum are very good um, judges of character and they understand people for who they are and um, they're very loyal, trusting just amazing people. Um, well, that's interesting. So. I mean, that, that, that's interesting. And I, you know, then all the, we talk a lot about your job and I, I don't think I've ever heard you say it quite that way. So that's, that's some pretty fascinating uh, insight, but let's talk about you for a second in regards to this. Uh, I know the answer to this, but let's pretend I don't. What got you interested in this and into this and what keeps you going every day? Because there's no way to get around the fact that this work takes a tremendous amount of patience and um, you got to be somebody that really, really, really cares that I know you are, but let's start with what got you into it. So there was a couple of reasons. So I really happened to, I found the field on accident. Um, I think it's a purposeful accident, but it was an accident. My undergraduate degree is in um, elementary education. Mm -hmm. So I graduated at a time where it was really hard to find teaching jobs. So I started working in a classroom for kids with autism, who, um, and it was very heavily focused. There's the classroom really used a lot of ABA principles and practices. Um, and I just very, like fell in love with that population, was very interested in it, felt calling to it. And that's where I first learned about ABA and what ABA is, what a BCBA is, things like that. But I also have an uncle who I'm sure you've talked about many of times on the podcast. Yeah, that'd who, be my brother. Um, has um, special needs, um, never diagnosed, but I think we all can agree that he's probably on the autism spectrum. So um, he's definitely another inspiration. And then as far as kind of what keeps me going is I really just love to see kiddos independence grow. You like to see the changes. Yeah. I mean, you know, when a kid puts a full sentence together and you want to do a touchdown dance, you know, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. (laughs) And, And it could be something I've brought up this example before, certainly off the air, whether it was a discussion you and I had on the radio or not, I'm not sure, but, um, you work with these kids too, to, and again, this goes to maximizing their lives, but these kids of all different ages for something as basic as, is potty training or going to the store or the grocery store or going to the mall and things of that nature. And this is to me where the patience is really amazing because you have to do, uh, some really specific, uh, training and it takes a lot of repetition and so much patience to get them to the point where they can. But I love when I get those calls from you because, you are doing your uh, your literal or your figurative touchdown dance because a kid cleared that hurdle um, on that day after a period of time that you're working with them, and that's got to be a thr- yeah. that's got to be a thrill for the parents too, right? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, uh, so so people, you know, in in general, mean well. At least that's what I've tried mm-hmm. to always make you think. You know, but but kids uh, with autism. Uh, don't have the same visual cues. They don't look folks in the mm-hmm. eye. Obviously, in a lot of cases, 
speech is an issue and things of that nature. What do you say to people who, you know, run into somebody they know or maybe they don't know a stranger and they have an autistic child? How should they respond and what are some of the things that, you know, you go, no, you don't do that? I learned early on that you don't say things to families like, I don't know how you do it or God will never give you something you can't handle because just learned very early on that that just doesn't mean anything to families with kiddos with autism because, you know, this is what they're living with every day. I think and something I've tried to do when I talk to parents and I think this is a good thing for all of us to do is focus on, you know, what the kiddos can do and try to phrase it in the positive as much as possible and not say things like, oh, so he can't talk. Oh, so right. be aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Right. Be like, oh, what can, you know, um, what is your kiddo good at? Yeah. What what's this, what's this one up like? to? Yeah. What's he interested in? Right. Things yeah. like that. Yeah. So in your practice, your, your, your company, uh, you do, I know, administrative things as well, but then you have therapists who have any number of cases that they work as well. Do you get involved in those cases? I have my own caseload mm-hmm. and I have behavior technicians or registered behavior technicians underneath me who, um, work with my clients on a daily basis. And it's my responsibility to oversee that client's case, which includes training the therapist on how to effectively work with that client, continuously checking in with them, making sure things look the way they're supposed to look, making sure the client is making progress. Um, So yeah, especially in the center setting, you know, the kiddos that work with me, or the kiddos, the behavior techs that work with me also work with other VCBAs. We all have different approaches and things like that, but that's kind of how the behavior technician role works for sure. What's the hardest part about your job? Is it the insurance paperwork, like I hear from so many people in the medical field? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, probably. ABA is a relatively new science only kind of came became well known in the 70s um so i don't think there's a lot of acceptance or there is but as much as there can be or should be of aba as a science and i um treatment for kiddos with autism um so i kind of feel like insurance like to pick on aba a little bit um so I don't know if it's necessarily the paperwork as much as all the information that they want to miss that. <laughs> yeah, because it's frustrating because you've got the kids and the cases right in front of you. Yeah. Um, and you probably already answered this, but if I said, what's the best part about your job, what would that answer be? Seeing the kids increase their independence skills. Oh, for sure. mm-hmm. Well, the, the, uh, the only other question I ask you is this is a growing field and I know you need more folks in it. So if somebody hears this and is touched by it or has an interest in it, um, what should they do? Uh, what sort of schooling should they get that type of thing? Is there a basic answer to that? So to be a behavior technician or a registered behavior technician, 
you don't need any um, prior education. You can apply um, for a job and you would receive training on the job. By your side does a very good job of doing a very robust training to get um, all of our new hire staff to a point where they are very effective technicians. So yeah, to be an RBC or um, a behavior tech, you don't need any um, prior education. Um, but that's the first step to a BCBA's uh, position, right? Right. Yes. So to be a BCBA, you need a um, master's degree in um, either behavior analysis or related fields, such as psychology. And then there is a BCABA, Board Certified Assistant Behavior Analyst, where all you need is your bachelor's degree, and then you would work directly under a BCBA. And then there is also a BCBAD, doctorate level BCBA as well. Well, look, I, I know one thing that I'm uh, right about, and, you know, me, I still think I'm right about a lot of things, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the one thing I know I'm right about is I'm really glad you're in these kids' lives and I know that their lives are better because of it. But I also know that you believe, and I certainly believe it as well, that your life has been immeasurably made better by this experience that you've had and you'll continue to have in your life's work. So I'm very proud of you. Thank you. April is Autism Awareness Month and we could all be... Um, uh, more up to date and up to speed on something as important as autism. I saw a statistic that said one in 68 kids in you in the U S can be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, uh, every year, um, you know, as a national average. So I think actually less now, less meaning, Uh, meaning one in a lower number. I should have looked it up beforehand, but I think it might be in the fifties now, one in like 50, um, well, I mean, it just it just reinforces the importance of what uh, you guys do at By Your Side, the service you provide, and everybody that's in the field. So keep up the good work, my daughter. One in 54. One in 54. All right. Well, I'm glad you found that. Well, yeah. as I said, keep up the great work. Uh, I'm proud of you. I love you. And I don't say that to all the guests on this show, not even Dr. Most. <laughs> but uh, thanks for uh, coming on live from my office. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in refinancing your existing home to lower your interest rate, pay off debt, shorten the term of your loan, or renovate your home, then you need to do what we did when we needed any help related to our house, the land we own. Look, it's all there with Team Hochberg, a trusted local lender. In January, Team Hochberg helped the listeners throughout the greater Chicago area secure lower rates and convert close to $2.4 million of their home's equity to renovate their homes, pay off credit cards, car loans, medical bills, collections issues, judgments, IRS tax liens, and reduce their payments over $60,000 a month. So seriously, what are you waiting for? Your debt isn't going to magically disappear. The consultation is free. That's why you need to call Team Hochberg. Do it now. See if they can help you lower your rate or pay off debt to reduce your monthly payment. Team Hochberg has helped me and my family, thousands of listeners as well, securing low rates and reducing their monthly payments. But they can't help you if you don't call 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. That number again is 855-563-2843. 
or 56david.com for Homeside Financial and Equal Housing Lender. Homeside Financial also reminds you to listen to David Hochberg on Saturday mornings. Uh, that's from 10 until 1 on WGN. Homeside Financial, an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. It is a great, as we continue uh, this time around in interview, uh, to serve the purpose of mentioning our charity of the episode. Uh, each episode, uh, I like to take time out to recognize a cause that's worthy of your support. You could tell me about one you'd like to have publicized for free for me by simply sending me an email about this or anything, by the way, send it to the Cochran show at gmail.com, the Cochran show at gmail.com. And uh, your charitable cause will likely be plugged on a future episode. This time around it's Hesed house. The cause is homelessness and the man who directed Hesed house to a tremendous success in fighting the scourge of homelessness uh, joined me earlier today on the phone. I want to play back that conversation for you now. It's Ryan Dowd joining me as we continue on Live from My Office. My friend Ryan Dowd, how are you? Fantastic. I love to talk to you. It was great talking to you on the radio. Great talking to you on the podcast. Yeah, well, you know, we all have to uh, some sort of, uh, uh, I guess the word is adapt. Is that the word I'm looking for? Adapt? Adapt, evolve, yeah. Yeah, there. evolve, adapt, all of that, which is something you are now doing in a new role. But let's back this up to how you and I met. Hesed House, to me, it was such an eye-opener to tour it with you and to help out with some fundraisers because we all have these misnomers and these preconceived notions about homelessness that you cleared up very quickly. Um, but I know how proud you are of Hesed House and all the years you spent there and, and continue to be affiliated with them. So start with Hesed House. How's it different? Yeah, so Hesed House is, is, is different in two big ways. Um, let me kind of start with, we're fanatical about dignity, and particularly the dignity of getting people out of homelessness back in our homes again. Uh, and so anything we need to do to, to help people get back on their feet again, we're going to do it. And what's what's really cool about Hesed House is is the ability to partner with so many different agencies. So we don't, we can't be all things to all people. And yet individuals living in a shelter need a lot of different services. So, you know, we partner with one agency to, to bring on site mental health counseling and another one substance abuse counseling. And another one runs a full-time medical clinic and, and NIU law school runs a legal clinic on site. And, and all told, you know, we've got, I don't know, 10, 15 staff on site that, that do not work for Hesed House, that work for other agencies, but that bring this expertise and this one-stop shop and this kind of multidisciplinary team together in a way that's, that's really, really rare. Uh, most agencies try to do it on their own, and we've just decided we can't do everything that, that our guests need, and so we're going to bring in all the different partners to do it. And and it's just such a much more effective way of helping people get back on their feet again. Yeah, and to wrap your head, for folks to wrap their head around, I don't know, you know, you, you, I, I hope this isn't an offensive way of putting it, but to me, it was it, it was a design of a mall, and the idea being that if if you are in a position of being homeless, which we all could be, more on that in a moment. But um, if you're in that position, the stress is incredible. And to have everything in the same building or within walking distance, that's a huge deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the old model was, you know, we, okay, you, we, you need to talk to a mental health counselor. Well, that's on one side of town. We're going to take this bus to over there and you're going to walk a mile. And you need a substance counselor. Well, they're in the opposite direction. 
and job trainers are somewhere else. And none of these people typically know each other or work together. And so they might have completely conflicting plans for someone who's trying to, to sort this all out and make transportation work. And so what we do is we just put it all on one site rather than kind of dragging homeless folks around town to different agencies. We drag all the agencies into one spot and just make that one-stop shop, that, that, that mall of nonprofit services in one place. And it's just, remarkably effective. And one of the things that, again, was an eye-opener for me is the idea that all of us are a missed mortgage or two or missed paychecks or two away from finding ourselves in this position because the dignity piece that you mentioned is crucial. And uh, the one thing that we have to uh, drop is this notion that homeless folks are drug addicts and alcoholics and they could do better if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, when most people think of, of homelessness, they think of, you know, the dude who's been homeless for 10 or 15 years and, you know, the long white beard and smelling of alcohol and stuff. And the, the reality is very, very different. So uh, at Hesed House, and this is, this is pretty representative of, of the country, about half the people we serve at the shelter are gone within two weeks. So they're, they're barely homeless. They've got no major issues. There's no substance use, drug, uh, you know, no mental health issues there. They had some sort of economic crisis that shoved them over the ledge. Yep. They became homeless. They, they arrive at our shelter. They, they work with us. They work their butts off. They get back on their feet again. We never see them again. And then another 42% are out within one year. And so 92% of the people we serve are out within one year. And that's actually, I mean, I, 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 I'm proud of that, but it's also, that's not super rare for the country. The, the most people who become homeless in our country are not going to be homeless for very long. And they just don't fit our stereotypes and our notions of what homelessness looks like or sounds like or smells like. And for instance, at the shelter at any given time, you have families whose kids get up and go to school. This, of course, isn't a normal non-COVID era, but get up and go to school and people get up and go to work while they're trying to find their feet again and get that apartment or house so they can get back into their own place. Yeah, we typically have about 40 kids, give or take, in the shelter on any given night. And as high as 70. And it's, um, you know, any of your preconceived notions of what homelessness looks like or sounds like or how it should be treated gets completely shattered in the face of a, of a homeless three-year-old. Uh, no question. So how do you balance that against the fact that there are certainly cases of homeless folks who have addiction issues and also have uh, mental health issues, the, the greatest undertreated thing we have in this country? How are you able to balance that as a facility? So with the, with the families, we actually have a totally separate shelter for the families. And mm-hmm. so the, the families are only going to be with the families. They're not going to be with the single adults. And then the single adults, we just actually across the, the whole organization, we work really, really hard on getting to know everybody and training the heck out of the staff on, on conflict de-escalation and how to, how to help people follow the rules of dignity. And um, you just it's a day-by-day thing, and you do what you got to do, and, and somehow it works out. So what's the best thing we can do when we're on the street in downtown Chicago or New York or wherever, and we come across someone who's homeless and asking for a hand? Um, My son taught me a great lesson when he said, not only do you stop and make a donation if you're able and interested, but ask them their name. You know, that's all part of the dignity piece too, right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't judge people one way or the other, whether they give or they don't give to somebody who's panhandling. Um, I personally don't. Um, there's a lot of free food in, in, this, in this country, so I, I don't give. But I, what I do do is I will stop and I will ask how the person's day going and I will shake their hand, at least pre-COVID I would, um, and, and have a little conversation, you know, wish them a good day and, and go on. And, and, and I think that's important to me for two reasons. One, I think it's probably actually more valuable than, you know, whatever three quarters I might have in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because that, that being treated as a human being treated with dignity is something that doesn't happen typically while you're panhandling. Most people will step over you or around you as if you were a gar- bag of garbage or shout at you or yell at you or yell at you to get a job or whatever. And so just having a little bit of, of, of human interaction is incredibly valuable. And then the second thing for me is that it's actually more expensive for me than, again, whatever change I might have in my pocket because a certain percentage of individuals are going to take that as a sign. Oh, this guy, if, I, if I'm just aggressive enough, he's going he's gonna to give me some money. And so that conversation might last a block or two. And again, I just... Like, Keep the conversation going until it's time to part ways and uh, wish them well. The movie The Public, which you helped promote with <laughs> Emilio Estevez, tried to shed some light on this. Do you feel like it made a difference? It definitely did for the people that saw it. It, it didn't get as, um, it wasn't as widely viewed as we would have hoped. Uh, I think too many people thought it was a documentary or that it was going to be depressing, which it was It was neither. Right. It was a, you know, a major, a, a, a full-fledged major movie with, with major actors um, and, and not at all depressing, which is, which is one of the, the real gifts of that movie in that so many people, when they think of homelessness, it's just depressing. They think of people sitting around crying. But I can tell you after a few decades of working in a homeless shelter, that, that's just not the case. You know, people laugh and, and joke and, and, and have joy, even in the midst of, of deep suffering. And, and that movie did a really, really good job of capturing all the different dimensions of homelessness in a way that Hollywood almost never gets right. Well, and I would say too, not only is it not depressing, um, I think it's inspiring and uplifting and I hope people can see it on demand. Can they? Yeah. So I know it's definitely on, um, uh, it's definitely on like Amazon or voodoo and stuff. You can purchase it there, but I think it's also on Peacock if I remember correctly. And again, it's called The Public. It's only a couple of years old, and it came out of an incident in Cincinnati. Is it based on a true story with the public library there, or is it that was just the inspiration for the story? It's it's based on you know stuff that happens in libraries all around the country every single winter of of homeless patrons you know, getting close to closing time and having to, to reconcile the fact that they're about to leave a public building and, and head out into the cold where they're, where they may or may not freeze to death. And, and, and there's, you know, there's a Hollywood twist here with, uh, you know, a, a kind of a sit-in and, and mm-hmm. police getting called and whatnot. But the underlying concept of, of individuals who don't have anywhere else to go using libraries as a place to stay warm and, and find some human dignity is absolutely happening all across our country. Well, at least it was pre-COVID. There was a story that came out this weekend, too, about airports. And airports are generally not in downtown areas for obvious reasons. But uh, airports also being a place where homeless folks uh, go and mix amongst those who are traveling and stay for as long as they can. I got to admit, and while it logically makes sense, it's a place to stay warm. I hadn't even thought of that. Is that a big deal? Pretty much any public building. Um, and and I, why that's important is that Public spaces where someone who doesn't have any money can go and be is a, is a shrinking commodity in our country. There's, it, there's fewer and fewer places someone can go and just exist right. without having to spend any money. And so, sure, libraries, um, uh, train stations, um, airports, definitely. So that brings us to politics uh, and the divisiveness that, that goes on now where it's not about doing the right thing. It's about whether or not I'm right and you're wrong. Um, how much of a hit is homelessness as a cause taken during this era? So COVID's been fascinating, and not in a not in a fun way. Um, the COVID really, really exposed the 
the inadequacy of our, of our homelessness system in this country in that most shelters were designed for how many people can you pack into the smallest, tiniest space possible? Right. Because that's, that's cheapest and there's not a lot of resources to do this. And then COVID came along and said, okay, you got a social distance. You got to get everybody six feet apart. Well, that, there was not a single shelter in this country that I'm aware of that was actually designed pre-COVID to be able to manage COVID. And so what most shelters did was they just cut their capacity in half, and that was that. And and you're, you're seeing a huge rise in the number of people living on the streets because, you know, a city might have had, you know, 20% inadequate shelter space, and then that, you know, after COVID, it's 60%. Um, you know, 60% of the people are not going to get a bed because this is not enough. And it's, uh, it's really been, from that standpoint, it's been just terrible. The flip side of that, though, is that the moratorium on evictions has dramatically reduced the number of people coming into homelessness. Right. Dramatically. And so whereas we used to see 16 new people a week, every single week, that dropped to just a handful. Uh, it's starting to uptick again. And once the, once the eviction moratorium ends, we anticipate that the floodgates are going to open again. Um, kind of similar to the ones in 2008. So we're, we're bracing for, for what's coming. So uh, this is not a Republican problem or a, a Democrat problem. This is an American problem. How are we doing as a nation compared to other westernized civilizations and first world countries, as they're called? Um, probably towards the bottom. Uh, our, our, our policies are very much... so. The one thing America does really, really well is is charity. So we do a really good job of having this philanthropic spirit and and people giving what they can in a way that almost no other country has. And so because of that, we have a pretty thriving nonprofit sector, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But it also is is horribly dependent on charity, and charity can swing left and right depending on what the economy and the stock market does. Other countries invest more government dollars into it, and so there's much more stability into the system uh, with, with housing than, than the United States would have. That said, I'm, I'm optimistic from the standpoint of we're getting better as a country, as a world, as an industry in learning how to help people get out of homelessness. And the biggest change we've made is that we've started studying what works instead of doing what sounds like it should work. Explain, example, explain that difference, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, the, the kind of classic common sense approach to homelessness is, is something like transitional housing. So we're going to give you six months and a lot of support, and we're going to hold you accountable. And if you screw up, we're going to kick you out, and that accountability is going to help move you forward, and that time, zone, the time frame is going to help you move forward. And it's very... It's very intuitive. That just makes sense. But when you research it, it's actually wildly ineffective. And the reason it's wildly ineffective is that the individuals that do well in that type of high accountability model, they were going to do well anyways. And the type of people that need that higher service model don't do well with a one-strike-you're-out approach. They, They just end up getting kicked out. And so HUD has actually stopped funding these programs when the, when the research shows they just don't work. Now, ironically, what does work with chronically homeless individuals, people who have been homeless for a long period of time, is what's called permanent supportive housing. And it is basically un-American in its description and absolutely genius in its application. And here's what you do. You take somebody who's been homeless for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and has some sort of disabling condition, whether it's mental health issues or struggles with addiction or trauma or whatnot, and you put them in an apartment and you pay for the apartment 
and you send a case manager out to the apartment to work with them and keep them stable. And you do that indefinitely. And it's so counterintuitive because there's no effort to help this person get back on their feet again. And it sounds just so contrary to this American ethos of pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Mm -hmm. What's insanely brilliant about it though, is that it is incredibly economical. So you take someone who's chronically homeless, struggling with a mental health issue and you leave them on the streets and they're going to cost society anywhere between let's say 50 and $150,000 a year in terms of uh, police interventions and hospitalizations and ambulance rides and shelter costs. You take that same person, you stick them in their own apartment and a ton of these issues just go away. It turns out that the stability of housing is a cure for a lot of things that homeless individuals face. And so a lot of the issues that we associate with homelessness literally go away when the person's not homeless anymore. And so now instead of, instead of spending fifty to 150000 on this individual, we might be spending twenty, you know, or 15 plus the cost of the housing. And you actually end up saving money and the person gets a more dignified lifestyle. And it's, 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 it's kind of a everybody wins. And it's, it's one of those places where solving homelessness is actually cheaper than managing it. Yeah, and it makes, and, and again, it makes total sense. Is there a country that does that and does it well? Um, you know, it's, it's definitely making its way around the world in the, in the United States, um, Salt Lake city did a really, really good job with it. They're, I think they've slipped in the last couple of years, but they did, they just almost cleared their streets for a while there because they just invested so much into it. Um, some other cities have really doubled down and, and where they, where they do the, the, the impact is dramatic. And the other reason it's so, so dramatic is when you look at the numbers, if, you know, if, if 92% of individuals are, are going to be out within one year, if you invest a lot in getting those people out faster, sure, you know, you, they might be out of homelessness within six months instead of 12 months, and that's great for them. But look at the flip side of taking somebody who might be homeless for 15 or 20 or 25 years and shorting that down to one or two. Sure. You've just, you've just dramatically changed the face of this country. Yeah, it's the you can pay me now or you can pay me later. So at the exactly. very cynical level, the most effective thing to do, the humane thing is obvious, but the most effective thing to do is that. Uh, is there anybody who has the political will that's currently in Congress who is trying to move the ball on this? So ironically, the George Bush administration really changed the game. They're the, they were the first administration to start looking at the data and going, you know, the data says that we should be doing this kind of counterintuitive method and we're going to follow the data. And so the Bush administration really pioneered it and the, and the Obama administration kind of tweaked it. And then the Trump administration decided to completely reject the, the research and start taking it in the, in the opposite direction. Well, of course they did. Um, fortunately, the, the, the bureaucracy that is the American government is slow to turn. And so you can't really turn a, the Titanic that quickly. And so I think the damage can be undone. Um, but knowing Congress, again, as I do, you have to have someone who's going to be your rabbi or your shepherd who's going to push this stuff through and doesn't sound like anybody's picked that ball up quite yet. Yeah, there's not any kind of single one player that's like, yes, I'm going to I'm going to be the champion for this at the moment. It's, okay. it's been much more coming from from the advocates on the outside, from um, from the bureaucrats within HUD sure. uh, and from the academic community that's doing the research. So. It's, it's a kind of multifaceted approach, but yeah, it doesn't have that one key power player to move it forward at the moment. So you work with homeless organizations around the country to make them better and more effective. And you know, Washington, you lived and you work there. Uh, is there a, and I'm not being trite when I say this, is there a lobby for homelessness in Washington that exists? Yes. 
ish, um, you know, with a big asterisk. And it's, it's not going to be a lobby in the traditional sense of, of, you know, people in suits that have, that were former congressmen. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, it's going to be much more grassroots. It's going to be, you know, homeless shelters like Hesed House and, and our, you know, six to 10,000 volunteers. And, sure. the, you know, the, the damage or the difficulty is that we don't have that professional lobby. The, Benefit though is that when you can mobilize tens of thousands of people who who have volunteered in a homeless shelter and have seen exactly what homelessness looks like and shook its hand, um, that can be quite impactful uh, in Congress. And so uh, it, it's hard to rally the troops because it's it's such a diverse effort. But when it when it happens, it can it can be amazing. Uh, last year, of course, crushed everybody financially. In the last year, not just last year. Um, and charitable organizations, donations just fell through the floor. Um, is there something you want to say in regards to that other than encouraging folks to help in any way they can? Money and time are both vitally important. Yeah, time's difficult, though, right now, because most organizations are not taking volunteers until they get, you know, we've got a little more vaccination under our belt. So, sure, for sure. example, Hassett House, which normally has, you know, six to 10,000 volunteers a year, is not is not accepting volunteers at the moment. And our whole system was designed for volunteers. So that's, that's, that's been painful. Um, obviously, definitely donations are always needed now, especially so. But then once, you know, once the world starts to open it back up again, we, we've got to get people volunteering again, because that's what the that's what that's what makes this all work, both in terms of having the political will, but also in terms of just most organizations that work on homelessness are designed to have volunteers. And if people don't come back, it's going to get it's going to get ugly quick. So if there's one, pl- I mean, you know, it's hard for you to just say one place, but I assume your heart is with Hesed House and that's an easy place for us to talk about. If people want to make a donation, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, online, uh, hesedhouse.org. So it's spelled H-E-S-E-D, house.org. Anything we missed that you think is worthy of mention? You know, the the one thing, the, the ray of hope in all this is there was some research done that showed that individuals as a country, they were starting to look at poverty differently mm-hmm. because of COVID, that the the, the general attitude around poverty has shifted from one of, boy, poor people really should have worked harder and been smarter with their money, more towards, a, well, there actually isn't this systemic, systemic component to poverty that goes beyond individual responsibility and that maybe we do need to look at systems that create and perpetuate poverty or systems that can help alleviate it. And so if there's any shiny, happy thing that comes out of COVID, it's going to be that we we as a country look at and understand poverty differently and hopefully we respond to it differently. Well, that's, that's, you know, earth shaking. That's a, that's a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. So it's my friend, Ryan Dowd, uh, the former boss at Hesed house who encourages you to support Hesed house any way you can in and around Chicago, around the country, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, but how do people know and wherever they're listening in the country or in the world, because we have listeners all over the world, how do they know whom they should support? Is it simple as Googling your local homeless shelter? That's probably the best way to go, yeah. Just see who's in the area and um, see what they need to kind of help they need. Right, and it could be anything, you know, um, uh, but but, uh, the time part will come. The money part's vital, and we thank people for all they've done, and we thank you and everyone involved in and around Hesed House and the cause of homelessness in the country. You know, we're not long away from a House of Representatives re-election period and make sure the candidate you're voting for has this on their agenda or tell them they're not going to get your vote. How's that, Ryan? 
that's excellent. Thank you. So all the best, my friend. Thank you for doing this. And we're happy to promote whatever you're involved with, because that's uh, that's the important stuff. And uh, glad to have a platform to help in any way here on Live From My Office. Thanks, Pete. Talk to you later. That's it. Another episode complete. We can't thank you enough for all of your support. That's 99 episodes. Number 100 will be next Monday. We're off for the remainder of the week. Technical adjustments aside, we'll come back next Monday with episode 100. Thank you, Ross Cochran, for making all of this possible. It doesn't happen without Ross. And thank you for listening. Thank you to Amy Cochran and to Ryan Dowd, our guest today. Uh, And please spread the word wherever you can. I appreciate it very much as we continue to grow. Thank you for the support. uh, And uh, we'll see you next Monday for episode 100 of Live from My Office. 30 years plus on the airwaves. You have turned your dial to me. Now you're tuned into my podcast. It's live from my office, Steve. From Ithaca, New York, to Carolina South, W. Cochran, Steve. From Minneapolis and then Chicago twice, top-rated shows achieved. Sit back, relax, and now listen to my show. When or wherever you are, cause you're on the go. A-list celebs with some laughs and great info. Live from my office, the Steve Cochran Podcast Show. Yeah, 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 No better place to be. Yeah, 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 Subscribe and like for free. So glad you're with me. It's live from my office, Steve. Thank you for listening to Live from My Office, a service of Monkey Run Productions. All rights reserved. The podcast is hosted by Steve Cochran, and it's mixed, edited, and produced by me, Ross Cochran. Support the show by subscribing wherever you're listening and by telling your friends about it. Follow Steve on all social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And make sure you check out this episode's show notes for relevant information discussed during the conversations. You can also email the show directly at thecochranshow at gmail.com with any questions or comments. And that's the best place to tell us about your favorite nonprofit so we can make sure we mention them on the next episode. Steve is available for corporate speaking gigs. He would love to emcee your event. And occasionally, he's funny. Thank you for listening. Head to CochranShow.com for more.